speech to the Fabians on July the 8th, uh, so coming up for two weeks ago. As you say, I think it's sort of subsiding now, but, but for a while it, were, it was quite quite a, a lively um, topic, both um, in the social uh, networks, but also in the, in the newspapers. Vet Cooper gives a speech um, at the Fabians, which comes at just after this surprisingly... Uh, successful uh, Labour general election campaign. Um, and it, it's a speech where she's, as, she's making a very, you know, a, a broad set of points. Uh, it's worth noting that um, it might be the case that, that this speech would have been a, a very good platform to launch a leadership bid uh, had um, Labour performed less well in the election and indeed had, had performed in line with uh, general consensus expectations uh, during the campaign. Anyway, during the speech, she she makes a point of um, uh, defending the BBC um, as a as a bulwark against um, various kinds of extremism. And she defends Laura Koonsberg in particular against the kind of abuse that uh, has often been levelled at her, and more generally, she talks about the way that. Um, political discourse is being coarsened um, by a culture of vituperation, of accusation, and of you know often very violent racism and sexism. And this this has a, has an impact again on social media, um, and there is a more or less um, intemperate response to it, which appears to. Uh, to, to make her point for her in some ways. Um, a, a picture of her is posted travelling alone online, which is taken as uh, as a, uh, a harassing thing to do. And it starts to bed down, I think, um, both her speech and the response. It kind of beds down in, in general perceptions an idea that um, abuse is something that happens... Um, on what are called the extremes of politics, on the extreme left and on the extreme right, and that in the middle you find a culture of civility and moderation. And I think it's really important to think a bit about how that structure works and think a bit about the ways in which one might challenge it. One of the things I think you and I both have to be conscious of talking about this is that we are 
relatively privileged white white men. And our experience of abuse online and in the real world is is sort of homeopathic, really, in comparison to what a lot of people uh, have to wade through um, d- day in and day out. But my very limited experience of abusive behaviour has overwhelmingly come from uh, Blairite Labour MPs and their supporters. Um, the people who um, have treated me with contempt or sought to dismiss me, um, or treat, to, to treat me in a, uh, an unpleasant, you know, personally unpleasant way, if you like, um, that, that are, as it were, knowable to me, have tended to be people who would identify with the, the radical centre of British politics. And so, yeah. I think it's, I, so I think it's very important that we bear in mind that this isn't, this isn't what about her and it's not saying, oh, you know, let's not, let's, you know, let's diminish misogyny or, or racism or whatever it happens to be when we find it on our team, as it were. But I think it, but I do think it's very important to stress that when we talk about moderates, we, we don't fall into the, the idea that they're, they're, they're in some way inhabiting a normal civil center. Um, and that the people who, who take different political views are somehow, um, peripheral, somehow marginal, and somehow, you know, somehow less, less worthy of consideration and respect at the level of, of ideology and ideas. It's kind of a subspecies, isn't it, of this liberal centrist idea that, you know, we are the people who um, are just going to get on with things outside of this kind of hysterical um, political ideas that exist on the fringes. We're going to manage everything effectively. And it's just kind of it's, an, it's a version of that centrist argument, isn't it? But in, in a particular sort of context. That's right. I think you're right. I think it's kind. It's a sort. It's. It's. You could see it as almost a kind of social technocracy. So it's. It's like the idea that public debate is a um, is a is a a way of comparing and contrasting um, positions in a in a dry and, and dispassionate manner. Um, and actually, I mean, one of the things that's interesting is that centrist discourse doesn't really meet up to its own billing. Like, you know, technocrats never really come up with plausibly technical solutions to problems. I mean, they, they always end up in a kind of frenzy of, of fantasies about how you can turn universities into markets. And I mean, you know, the, the technocratic dialogue is itself a kind of frenzy. Um, and when you look at the way that, um, uh, that you know, their idealised version of, of discourse is one where you know people make rational points about about ideas and they, they treat each other with civility and respect. But actually, overwhelmingly, moderate politicians just come up with platitudinous nonsense. Um, they don't. Do you know what I mean? It's not even as though they say, "Oh, we've got to be technical, we've got to be dry, and we've got to be dispassionate." And then they start saying, "Oh, we've got to pretend to be more patriotic to win over northern voters." Yeah. You know, do you know what I mean? It ends up. It's it's really it's a very peculiar. Like they think of themselves as white-coated technicians uh, of policy, but then they just kind of come up with vague gibberish about the need to sound a bit more like UKIP. Um, it's kind of str- yeah, it's very strange. Um, I think one of the difficulties of kind of broaching this issue. I mean, I think like any kind of political debate is you need to get a little bit sort of meta about it. I mean, do you think there's anything per se objectionable in Yvette Cooper's speech? No, I think, I mean, I, 
I think that there's nothing that one would would want to take issue with in in the substance of what she said at all. Um, what, where I think the the problem comes is how how a a particular intervention is is then picked up and and is then played out in other media. Um, so nothing that nothing we say exists without a context. Um, and in uh, in raising the issue of um, uh, of civility in in this way, it, it this, this again, it just doesn't happen in a technocratic vacuum. It doesn't happen in an environment where we have a dispassionate conversation about it. It happens in an environment which is, to some extent, still dominated by um, right right wing media, which will tend to operationalize. Um, uh, this discourse in order to attack um, the extremes, but interestingly, to focus the the bulk of the the hostility towards the left. Yeah. Um, so. They, so, yeah. I, I suppose the, the the degree to which I I would worry about the substance of what what tends to be said is in this this issue of conflating extremism with abusive behaviour and moderation with um, civility and, uh, and as it were, gentility, if you like. Um, when, in fact, the centre is often just straightforwardly abusive in its behaviour. I mean, you look at the way that Corbyn himself was treated by his MPs last year when they tried to make him stand down. Yeah, um, so Diane Abbott said something like, you know, that MP after MP stood up and, and tried to break him as a man or some, some sort of phrase like that. I mean, it was very clear that there was a kind of um, abusive element to what was going on there, which was actually designed to demoralise Corbyn. And I think one of the things that, you know, gets lost in all these discussions, I mean, it should be kind of an obvious point, but doesn't seem to get um, made much within, you know, the mainstream, is, of course, that this, this conflation with abuse of the left, and then it ignores the fact of how abusive the Labour moderates have been um, towards not only Corbyn himself, but but supporters of Corbyn, where, you know, they've been de- been described in the most sort of dismissive and kind of derisory tones. And then, um, after all that, you know, I mean, really what's now months and months of abuse, then... Corbyn supporters end up being told that that they, or, or we, I should say, because I'm a supporter of Corbyn myself, um, are, are ourselves the the abusers. That um, that there, there's something inherently problematic about um, participating in in sort of transformative political project that that makes it um, abusive, or in some ways that that that, that there's something a particular problem with the left when it comes to forms of racism and misogyny and so on. Yeah, and again I think that there there is a there's a problem with them with the idea that the you know that you have a moderate civil centre and then you have these immoderate and uncivil extremes. And if you look at the historical record, the great gains in um, uh, in women's rights, in gay liberation um, and anti racism, these are championed at some political cost by the left wing of the Labour Party. Um, the very people who um, who formed the milieu in which Corbyn operated throughout most of his career, the so-called hard left, are the people making choices in local government about how 
to be more inclusive, how to um, celebrate and encourage multiculturalism, um, and doing so in ways which ha- which carry a real political cost. Um, these left-wing councils in the 1980s would, were vilified in the right-wing media for being loony left, for pursuing a, a culture and a, a, a politics of social inclusion, which has is, which is now become entirely mainstream and which is embraced by the moderate centre and to some extent is appropriated by the moderate centre as part of its its self-identification or its self-image as being um, moderate and decent uh, and sensible. But if you look at the historical record, these people are much less prominent in, in, in the fight for these values um, yeah. when, they, when they enter the civil space. I think it's also worth saying that, you know, the, the, the Labour left um, in that particular period where they started, I mean, from the 1970s and into the 1980s and municipal socialism, you know, they were being influenced by, you know, the, uh, what were called the new social movements who were pioneering a sort of opposition or extra-parliamentary politics. And, and it was those movements, you know, the women's movement, the anti-racist um, movement, which were in turn influenced by the civil rights movements in, in the United States, which was then feeding into the politics of the Labour Party. Well, these were really the most civilizing forces in Western society from the current perspective. And what kind of politics were they actually advancing in those periods? It was oppositional, anti-systemic, and sometimes very confrontational forms of politics. So, um, you know, direct action, um, protest, confrontational politics, which is oppositional to authority and the rest of it. People existing outside the formal kind of political sphere, um, these movements are the ones who have, you know, in many ways, civilized society. And I think, you know, you're absolutely right. It's an interesting point that they've, um, through those movements, working their way into the political system, have created new values which are now upheld by the political moderates and claimed as their own in the same way that, you know, nobody in the US now uh, doesn't see Martin Luther King as being a figure to, uh, in, in, in sort of mainstream politics, doesn't celebrate Martin Luther King as a, as a formal, as a sort of, sorry, a figure to celebrate. Um, and we see this all the time, that these uh, movements arise, they confront power, and at the time they're Lined and slandered, and then gradually find their way into, you know, into sort of uh, revisionist histories. I think it's worth, like, as well, you know, taking that historical perspective when it comes to um, the history of the labour movement too. So the, the the kind of common sense that's now formed is this idea that. Uh, social media has itself unleashed this kind of, um, you know, all of this abuse and this lack of civility and that it's important to get back to a form of politics where we take each other's um, perspectives seriously, where we exist in intelligent dialogue with each other and and so on. Um, I think you can look at this historically slightly differently as being... Um, as we're having gone from a much more public orientated culture of confrontational dialogue, which would be associated with democratic politics in like hustings and town hall meetings and real world interaction, where people from the left and from social movements could confront and um, question and dialogue with um, figures of political authority. And that gradually is what's happened as that kind of public. Um, political culture has been eroded into what's 
been termed sort of post-democracy, a much more um, stage-managed process of uh, sort of mediated political culture, as that kind of um, public culture has been eroded, in some ways you can see the social media is bringing back that kind of um, confrontation. And I think it's interesting to look at it the right in that perspective. I mean, some of the figures, uh, you know, the sort of celebrated figures of the Labour labor. Tom, I'm a bit worried about Dennis your. Here. I'm a bit worried about the sound sound here. Okay, what do we need to do? Play, uh, I think it's play I think, back what we've got. No, I think it's back. I think it's back. It, you might we might have to replay it and cut cut out a from, bit. The, from the beginning. No, 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 no. Just just these last last few moments. It was buffering. Oh, okay. Um, but where, where did we get to? Shall I, shall I start? Where should I start from? Um, I you now. said you were just talking about social media as a way of bringing back a culture of, of kind of a confrontational culture that was more, you know, more apparent in the era of the hustings and so on. Yeah, shall I, shall I start with hustings again? Then? Um, or what did I get up to? Have you stopped recording, by the way, are we? No, no, we're st- I'm still recording everything. Okay. Um, so from one perspective... Social media can be seen as, uh, you know, eroding a kind of uh, substantive political culture and dialogue, you know, bringing down the tone of public debate, um, introducing all kinds of hostilities and abuse, which in one sense it has, of course, like it's opened up uh, a whole field of, as you said, like misogynistic and um, and racist sentiment, which, which has obviously been present in British society. But I think from another perspective, we can understand social media as bringing back um, forms of uh, public interaction and confrontation and dialogue with formal politics and political authorities. So if you think of the traditions of the 20th century in terms of like, you know, hustings and town meetings and a much more sort of grass, grassroots kind of campaigning culture, there was opportunities there for, um, you know, dialogue and even like heckling and uh of course of course uh you, you know um ill-tempered exchanges in in public forums which was just part of the cut and thrust of political life in the um in the mid-20th century and if you had figures from the labor moderates or the labor right people like harold wilson or dennis healy were readily able to interact with that kind of culture because th- this was a part of the cut and thrust of political life. And you could think of uh, the way that those people conducted themselves. If they were heckled in a public forum, you know, they could take the abuse and they could they could deal with that. Um, I think it's interesting when you see the reaction of the current political class to this kind of thing. Um, and, and this is why I think it's important to demarcate abuse from ill-tempered exchanges or, um, you know, political conflicts and hostility is that one of the things they don't seem to be able to do is, um, I mean, perhaps deliberately to uh, demarcate those two things, but also to, to interact and respond to, um, you know, being confronted and being confronted angrily and recognizing anger as part of um, a legitimate public politics. Yeah, this point I think uh, this point about the 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 sense that the the new media have given people an opportunity to uh, to speak back, and as you say, there's there are kind of parallels, aren't there, between between sort of heckling in the world and um, 
uh, and engaging on social media in ways which are less than respectful. Um, the other thing I think which is worth bearing in mind in this in this sort of immediate historical context is that you know political um, this this culture of mass meetings or hustings and so on was actually very lively and bordered often on being um, uh, extremely dangerous. <laughs> Um, it wasn't unusual for people to um, come to blows in these political meetings. Now, that's not to say um, that that's good or that that's somehow something we should we, we want to see a return to. But I think it's important to push back against the idea that we're uh, in the midst of a, a rising tide of, of, as it were, political violence. It's not entirely clear that, that that's true. Um, and that, as you say, the kind of highly mediated, would-be post-democratic politics um, of the Blair era may have been just an anomaly um, in that um, it was so bloodless and so so much kind of oriented around broadcast imagery rather than um, anything uh, more potentially um, vulnerable to you know, public intervention in some way. Um, I think the historical context as well is interesting. I think we can we can go back a, a bit further and think a bit about the different ways in which the people or the public are treated uh, as against um, the powerful. And I think there's an interesting moment in the, in Machiavelli's discourses where he talks about um, the differences between the ways um, that the people are talked about as against princes. And he says he says. Um, the sentiment against the people arises because everyone speaks badly about the people without fear and in complete freedom, even while the people rule. Everyone always speaks badly about princes with a thousand fears and a thousand reservations. And I suppose the point the point he's making is that even in a even in a in a, a formal republic, to criticise the people carries with it no real cost. Um, and we see this, I think, in general discourse um, nowadays. The way that we talk generally about people um, is incredibly dismissive. Um, and the way that people are presented to us by, um, again, by, I think, a lot of moderate politicians um, is incredibly, um, incredibly unflattering to the point of caricature. Um, it, to listen to... Um, uh, someone like Cooper talking about why people voted Labour, for example. There's a very interesting moment in the speech where she sort of gives a list of reasons why people voted for Labour. Um, and she doesn't mention in that the manifesto. Um, she mentions their, you know, the, the culture and the heritage and the inherited um, uh, traditions of the Labour Party. She talks about Jeremy, she talks about the NHS. In these very kind of primary colours kinds of ways. But the idea that people are rational political agents um, seems to just often be missing from the way that we talk about people in general. Um, and I think we have to, to some extent, point the finger at a, at a political culture and a, and a surrounding media culture that, that talks about the public as though we are essentially defective, um, that, as though we're in a position of permanent cognitive inferiority uh, to the people who are in charge. So that is, and uh, I think, to my mind, that is, as it were, 
that's the cornerstone, or that's kind of the core of what I would see as, a, as an abusive political culture, is one where we are constantly described to ourselves um, as being incapable of self-government. And we are given media product that assumes that we're incapable, right? Yeah. So mainstream coverage, week after week on something like this week, you know, with Andrew Neil, we'll have Ed Balls and Michael Portillo on the sofa and they're all chuckling away to each other about who's up and who's down in Westminster. And then there'll be some, some like, like video package where someone's making feeble jokes like on Westminster Bridge or something. And, and it's all kind of a bit of a lark. And it's all like, there's no, there's no substance to it because the assumption is you don't need substance. You want gossip and you want gags. And that seems to me, even like even in its supposedly serious coverage, um, broadcast tends to treat politics as a as a as an ongoing soap opera for people with, with degrees. Right? As as against a set of contending ideas about how the cult the culture and the country should should change. Um, and I think that is I think that is an ongoing insult to us. That would be my view. And it's an insult that they can get away with because there are really no or very few comebacks. Um, in what way can um, the people speak back about the way that it's misrepresented? If you're an MP and you're abused, you can say, look, I'm being abused. And you have a platform to speak about the way that you're abused. But when you think about, when you think about the, as it were, an abstraction, we talk about Vox Populi. There is no Vox Populi, right? People cannot speak. And so the extent to which we, we can't find a collective voice is the extent to which I think we're, we're kind of helpless in, in the face of this caricature. Yeah, and the opportunities for sort of talking back, I mean, we, we spoke about this when we were talking about the, the role of the public in the media are structured in a certain way where you're not allowed to ever um, question the terms of the conversation that's taking place. So it's not that, you know, there aren't, opportunities for your voice to be heard but what you're not allowed to do is actually yeah question the terms of the debate in the way that the MPs or you know people outside to a lesser extent outside of Westminster are allowed to lead the political conversation right um, so there's a sense in which like you know to participate you have to accept the legitimacy of the game as it's being played right mm-hmm. so if you want to appear on the BBC news as a vox you know as a vox pop then you have to accept the authority and the legitimacy of the person interviewing you, right? Most people, in their, in their right minds, having a microphone point in their face will just walk off because it's, it's an imposition. Um, there's a time minority of people who are like, yes, I think I should engage with this civil process of, of debate and discussion. And therefore, they're the people who end up on, on, on um, television as representative figures in the, of the public. So there's a sense which I find absolutely infuriating that submission is the price of entry. Yes, you can appear and you can ask a question on question time, but you have to kind of get your question vetted and, th- and there'll be someone saying, well, can we phrase it slightly differently? And you have to accept that, right? You have to accept your position uh, of inferiority in order to engage um, as a member of the public. Similarly with something like the complaints procedures that you have. Like the idea that you would complain to a public body is to, is to accept its legitimacy. Um, like, the idea that in, in, you know, in, in an actual democracy, as a citizen, you, you get to complain, is, is, is a contem- that's a contemptible position to be in. 
as a, as a citizen, you should be able to punish, not complain. You should be able to you should be able to sanction people for wrongdoing, not, yeah, not and, to appeal to their better judgment. And you know, it, it comes back to another facet of this debate about abuse, which has been this. Um, I mean, and this has particularly gone on around the Labour Party, which is the idea that um, local party or even attempting to deselect their representatives for Parliament is itself a form of abuse. So one of the things that got brought into this story was uh, the MP Lucina Berger, who was sort of, uh, there was a newly elected member of the executive in her constituency who sort of, I guess, fired a sort of warning shot at her about um, her uh, criticism she'd made of Corbyn. Um, but and whatever you think about how sort of politically astute that um, statement was, it then got treated as if it was it was somehow abusive, you know. And again, it, it comes back to I suppose a different form of what you've been describing, which, which is this um, this notion that uh, first of all, the uh, abuse is is to be conflated with any form of criticism, but secondly, you know, a quite um, anti-democratic sentiment in British public life where an MP being asked to be representative of the party uh, 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 that, they're, that, that selected them to stand, um, that any attempt to hold them to account by those party members is itself a, a form of abuse. Yeah, that's right. And I think this, I think this comes around as well to the, the culture of deference, if you like, that does surround um, Westminster and elected representatives, even when media, when, even when media coverage is hostile to, to individual politicians, it takes them seriously as being the bearers of um, popular sovereignty. They are entitled to public status in virtue of being elected, and that status is, as it were, individuated. So you saw in the election the idea that MPs. They have much, and, and during the leadership travails in the Labour Party, the idea that the Parliamentary Labour Party had more legitimacy than Jeremy Corbyn because he was only elected by a few hundred thousand people, whereas they had millions of Labour voters voting for them, right? So the idea was that somehow the votes they, they achieved as Labour candidates were their personal property um, that gave them a, a special kind of public distinction. Um, and And more generally, I think, there is a sense that MPs, are, are, they, they expect to be taken seriously and they expect to have certain sorts of prerogatives. Um, and they, they're willing to face an electoral trial every five years um, in, a, in a given media uh, environment. But they, they, as you say, they find the idea of challenge by their own party as, as, a, as a kind of a challenge to almost kind of an absolutist right to... Um, to their position, um, which is very interesting, and as you say, speaks to a um, a broader fear of the people, if you like. Um, I mean, I mean, going back to the way that the people are depicted. If you look at, if you watch a lot, if you watch sort of daytime TV presentations of the people, or the way that um, quote ordinary people are represented on television. You, what, you, what you often find is the spectacle of highly educated producers and their technical um, staff essentially coaching and shaping 
um, much less sophisticated or much less familiar, you know, people much less familiar with the dynamics um, of television production, shaping them into stock characters. Um, really, and they're and using you know the raw material of, of what people are like to tell stories, highly structured stories um, about the feckless poor, um, about um, you know you know run you know deadbeat husbands, um, about welfare scroungers. Um, and so on, in a way which, again, constitutes a kind of caricature of what people are like. And this goes on constantly. This is endless. I mean, we, are, we never see um, the real, the real, a real process of self-representation by um, the people who appear in uh, daytime uh, you know, shop chat shows of the Jeremy Carr variety. Those people are never given an effective um, opportunity to, to describe themselves. Um, they're picked out, um, they're cast, and they're, and they're primed to, to play the roles um, that, that, are, that are created for them. If you compare that with the culture that surrounds Westminster, MPs are able to a very large extent to generate their own coverage. May only be in the in the local press, but what they say, what they say is important, is taken as being important. They are bearers of a kind of public legitimacy um, that is, I would imagine, an intoxicating kind of power in a way. Um, yeah. And in that, in in that, given you know, given that that degree of of legitimation they're receiving, I think that that effective pushback. As you say, through de- by democratic means in their constituencies, would be experienced by them as a, as a form of uh, as being extremely threatening. Um, and I think um, you know to, to take it to sort of social back to the issue of social media as well. I mean, you do have this sort of culture about around Corbynism, which has now been you know much maligned as part of this debate around abuse. You know, like slugs and mouths and the rest of it i mean some of this kind of language is it it speaks of a certain kind of irreverence towards um the official politicians the the moderates in the labor party and so on which you know it's not a very nice way to describe people but it's a way of describing people which shows um which rejects what you're describing that kind of um sense of uh, of reverence and um, public significance that attaches to these kinds of people and just rejects it outright you know and it, it, it's a, it seems to be that a, a lot of what's being opposed in an abuse and I, I want to just you know stress again that it, we, we need to be very careful about not about differentiating um, irreverent or um, unpleasant or rude comments from 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 things which are clearly um, abusive, and 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 some things which are, which cross the line from one um, to the other, but it's very clear that some of the kind of cultural language around Corbyn supporters on social media, which is seen as being abusive, it is part of that rejection of you know MPs as being the um, and the Parliamentary Labour Party as being the legitimate point of political authority within politics, which was and has been. The um, you know the lines of conflict around Corbynism, you know, but essentially between the membership um, and the supporters of Corbyn and and the PLP, which has been blocking um, any 
you know, efforts at transformatory change in the party, but also, as I think we said, has been treating the efforts to do so in an, what I think is an abusive fashion. I think, coming back to your point as well about power, um, you know, we'd have to mention the power of the, of the tabloids in, in this respect and the role which they then played around this debate around abuse, where... You know, of course, the left have been portrayed by the likes of the Daily Mail and the Sun and to some extent the Times as being this sort of, um, you know, uh, hysterical bully boys and, and sexists and, and all of the rest of it. Um, and, of course, these are institutions which have, um, you know, entire business model is built around sort of um, misogynistic abuse and uh you know, and, and they have a history, of course, of like attacking the left in the most um, absurd and kind of uh, virulent manner, which mm-hmm. has probably been very damaging, actually, for the, um, for the Labour left. And, and, of course, like a lot of that gave rise to what became Blairism, this idea that actually it's not viable to pursue any kind of left politics, which means that you have to confront Murdoch and the Daily Mail. Um, but I think it's... I mean, an obvious irony, and one which we shouldn't have to point out, that what essentially amounts to um, powerful and abusive outlets in British public life are now um, attacking, you know, groups of young people, uh, you know, throwing around insulting remarks about moderates and and Blairites on Twitter. Yeah, that's, I mean, that is, yeah, it is a, it is a very, it's a very striking irony, isn't it? I mean, the other irony as well is that, the the kind of the 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 attacks on the labor moderates for being mindless for having no ideas um are a mirror image of what the labor moderates say about themselves like they're constantly saying oh we haven't we have we've got to come up with i mean they don't say we haven't got any ideas they say we need to come up with a refreshed policy option uh, offering right they haven't got any ideas they literally they don't know what to say apart from Maybe we should try and be a bit more racist in the Midlands or something. Do you know what I mean? It's like that's that's. The, I mean, I'm maybe being a little bit unfair. But no, I, mean, I think that's fair. They've got two versions of it. One is we need to be appeal to aspirational middle class voters, and the other is we need to appeal to racist working class voters. And that's their and they sort of swing between one or the other, don't they? And what? they do talk about narratives as well, of course. They talk about narratives exactly, but <laughs> it's like. They never even get to like once upon a time. Do you know what I mean? They don't ever start a narrative. They just say we need, we need a narrative. So yeah, but diagnosing a, a problem is the first step towards yeah <laughs> towards like, resolution. But but yeah, but what they tend to do is sort of misdiagnose the problem and then hope the patient will die. I think. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the the so there's a sense I think that the the kind of as you say I think we have to be very very careful. I mean, there is a problem of humour, isn't there, right? In that, the, the, if you look at, like, I think the, the, the best exponents, if you like, of a, of a left politics of irreverence and, and, and abuse, frankly, or, or of spite anyway, um, is, is Chapo Chap House in the United States. And it's clear that the energy is somewhat untoward, right? There's something kind of ungovernable about a certain kind of political enthusiasm or attack. Um, and it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to know what to make of it, in a way. Um, 
And because I think that the humor ex- does exist in this this space, which is it, it it can seem like a legitimate anger prompted by um, the like the violent excesses of the neoliberal center in the United States. Um, but it, it it can it can edge into something else. It can feel. Um, unnerving. Um, yeah, and obviously, yeah, so what? one element of the, this whole abuse story has been uh, the Real Politic podcast, which, um, you know, has been attacked by the Daily Mail, which is, you know, the, the sort of Corbynite version of that, with some very sort of, um, I mean, very personal attacks on various members of the Labour right. Um, but, you know, coming from a fairly sort of anarchic sort of humorous uh place really which i mean in the case of uh posting the photo of yvette cooper online uh you know was criticized by people on the left and then the the people who run the podcast apologize for it so that you know there's there's a conversation within the left about what the lines might be and how that gets policed and and, and that goes on and of course none of that gets enters into the discussion this all becomes a you know a story about again like Left, left bullies. But I think, you know, again, like, we need to think in historical context in, in terms of that kind of, um, you know, let's say uh, bad taste, anarchic sort of um, humour. I mean, it was also a, a strong feature of the left in the 1980s as well, and even sort of elements of elite political culture around, you know, political satire and all of that stuff coming out of punk as well, which kind of if you think of the way that Thatcherism was responded to and the the culture of protest and the incredible feelings of hostility around um, Thatcherism and the Conservative Party and the ways in which some of that um, fed into more mainstream forms of comedy, satire um, and political coverage. I mean, it seems very clear to me that some of the ill feelings and, and anger that are part of contemporary politics um, are not unique to the current moment that we're in, and that you can you can see it there, can't you? In, in things like spitting image, which you know isn't something that's coming from the left, but clearly had a very um, irre- irreverent and anarchic sort of um, uh, spirit to it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Politicians were often claimed to be flattered by or um, to enjoy their, their caricatures on spitting image. But if you look at the way that they were depicted, um, they were presented as being completely amoral, violent, dangerous psychopaths. Um, uh, certainly the, the Tory cabinet throughout the 80s was, was depicted as a, as a gang of, of, of rogues. Um, and you could, you, know, you could look back at spitting image and say, well, this is an incredibly dehumanising treatment of politicians, right? You know, Portraying Norman Fowler as a serial killer who's murdering hospitals is, you know, is delegitimizing him as a human being, and it's, you know, opening up to him to all kinds of, um, uh, of you know, violent sentiment and so on. But, but in fact, it was it was kind of domesticated, wasn't it? It was treated as being part of the rough and tumble. Yeah. Um, and I think part of the problem now is that you don't need a huge budget to engage in this discourse anymore. You can just be some someone with a Twitter account um, trolling MPs. And then I think there's something kind of, there's something sort of ungovernable about that, which I think is very, um, 
is very unsettling for people. Um, yeah. But I, you know, I think this is, you know, this is a. I'm going to sound like a like a melt, as I often do. I think because I think it's just a. Uh, it is an unavoidably ambiguous space to be in. Um, I think that um, political language is often uh, incredibly uh, dehumanizing, or it can, it, you know, it can take very extreme forms and still remain um, part of. Uh, of a, of a meaningful political dialogue. Um, I suppose my my hope is that we can we can begin to treat centrist ideas with the with the contempt that they deserve, um, and and not focus so much on on the individuals. Um, the the ideas themselves are disgusting and and they're violent and they're dangerous, um, and the people who um, promote and, and, and support them are given a huge prominence by our parliamentary system. But I think it's the ideas themselves that we need to um, defeat. Um, we've been talking now for 45 minutes um, and we said that we'd try and um, bring it in under an hour. So is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap things up? Yeah, I'd like to say Sorry for overrunning again. It seems inevitable, really. We're never going to keep it down to half an hour. Maybe we could uh, do a show in the future about satire and um, the role it's played in British politics, because I think it would be an interesting sort of um, thing we could go into and, and explore. And I, I think you're right about the humour. I think it, it is an inevitably sort of ambiguous, but then part of the reason for that is that, the, you know, part of the thrill and energy comes from that kind of ambiguity and that kind of... Uh, yeah, anarchic sort of uh, quality to it. Right. But no, and the sense I, that I think the sense that, that that the Corbyn project opens up new political possibilities has released uh, has released a huge amount of energy, and I think overwhelmingly it's it's positive. Um, and in, but inevitably, I think it brings with it moments of excess um, that we should um, we should be aware of, and we should seek to um, to minimize um, I don't think there's any uh, there's any doubt that that there is a line and, uh, and I think we, we never quite know where it is yeah well <laughs> on that you it, of course. <laughs> and that's how we never do that here okay um, um, I'm sure I've, I'm sure I've crossed a number of imaginary lines um, well if, if any listeners think Dan has crossed any lines or is too much of a mouth, then just let us know on Twitter and we'll do our best to address any problems. Um, I've been Tom Mills. Uh, this is the Media Democracy podcast brought to you by the Media Fund. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it and we will be back same time, same place next week. Bye. Bye.